if it's tuned and pay a bit more attention and, and look a little bit more closely, just slow it down, look a little bit more closely and understand the meaning they're making of their own behaviour, they're much more likely to engage because you're not coming from a deficit, let me convince you being bad and here's the way not to be naughty. You're interested in the way they're making meaning of the world. Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. Hi everybody and welcome to this Emerging Minds podcast. My name is Dan Moss and thank you for joining me today. Currently Emerging Minds has been working in the third of a series of trauma online courses and these courses are around supporting children who have disclosed trauma. To help us to develop this course, we've worked really closely with David Tully, who's Practice Manager at Relationships Australia in South Australia. For those of you who joined us last fortnight, you'll know that David has a long history of working with children who have been affected by child sexual abuse and domestic and family violence. So this is episode two in a series of two podcasts with David entitled Supporting Children Who Have Disclosed Trauma. Just to let you know that in this podcast, David does talk fairly explicitly about some of the details of the work with children who have experienced sexual and physical violence. So please just to be aware of your own emotional safety as you listen to this podcast. If at any point you find that you're struggling with the content, please talk with a friend, colleague, your supervisor. Or if you need to seek help, please call Lifeline on 131114, Beyond Blue on 1300 226 or SANE Australia on 1800 187263. So David, really enjoyed episode one of your podcast uh, where you began talking about how we can bring into focus power in ways that help children understand the context in which their trauma was enacted and in ways which help them to make sense of what happened and to move away from self-blame and secrecy, ways in which they could begin to see the decisions that they made to keep themselves safe or to keep other people safe ways that they've, against the odds really, been able to keep vital connections in their lives and the ways that they've exhibited uh, resilience and hope. So it was really fantastic the way you began talking about this and the idea that children are never passive during their experience of the trauma, that there are actions and decisions that they make to keep themselves safe. So I wonder if today you could start by talking a bit about how you help children to remember some of the ways that they've found to keep themselves or other people safe. Thanks, Dan. For me, it's about reinvigorating what I call that autobiographical memory system. Some people go, well, we actually need to go back to some of those earlier memory systems. But if I'm generally working with a child, young person who's got a certain last stage of language sort of development and can story aspect of their lives, I think that it's really important that we help make, you know, develop that, that, that story, provide a framework around that meaning that they're making to have those memory systems you know, be able to reincorporate aspects of those stories. Because I think once it becomes meaningful to talk about and those power relationships are clear, most people can talk about aspects of those memories. But we don't need to know all the details, but those memories become part that can be reincorporated back into that, that, that wider arc of their story about who they are because they don't feel like they're weak, stupid, should have stopped it, you know, dirty, horrible, that they can actually hold those memories and also they can hold those memories against other aspects of self. So it doesn't feel like they're completely dominated by these really horrible memories of, of sexual, sexualized violence or physical violence or emotional cruelty or oppression or racism or a whole range of other experiences they have that can hold 
those experiences against other aspects of self as well. So when you're asking children deliberately about their particular responses to mm. abuse or trauma, mm. part of what you're trying to do is um, to help children develop a new story or even kind of to make new memories about what happened? Yeah, and I think it, it is actually using already what's there but drawing a story between those different memories. You know, because resistance and response is as real as the violence itself. You know, it's really important that we can believe that, I think, because if we start believing or start seeing it, and if we understand that children, young people respond very differently to adults do, or even if we have a society that has really complicated through unhelpful beliefs around these issues, that we can then provide a framework where some aspects of self that are left acknowledged or less understood, we can just draw threads between those different memories and different beliefs that some person has. You know, we're leading something really solid, but it's not my story. The story of resistance response is already there. It's just been less acknowledged and it's been painted over, so to speak, but it's actually there still. And through the telling of these stories and the creation of these new stories and understandings, is it your experience that children who are traditionally hard to engage or ambivalent about being in a therapeutic setting, no. that they become more confident in telling these stories? Yes, because often these children, young people, have developed stories about them being damaged goods or just a naughty kid or unable to sit still. And, you know, there's all that. And then some of that's, you know, there's a, there's a context to that. You know, I'm not completely saying that it's not about the impacts of trauma. But I think through that active engagement and understanding some of what they're doing is not just dysfunction, it's actually their way of making meaning and protesting about stuff that they think is not fair and okay in the world. There's a much more active process that they're engaged in as opposed to being this very passive, I'm going to give you three techniques to sit still in the classroom. I mean, some of that's useful, but that knowledge that maybe they're protesting about, a maths teacher is a bit of a bully. Not having a go at maths teachers per se, I don't know. So this understanding for a child of their own ethical beliefs or preferences or even hopes around particular relationships, this might be quite new to a child to be actually asked to consider this. Yeah, and if you think about it, if you're dealing with a child, young person who's not just experienced, say, sexualised violence or sexual abuse as a child, but they've experienced other sorts of discrimination, it might be because their families from a poorer background or they might be because they're experiencing racism or other forms of discrimination, that that child young person is already feeling quite marginalised in their experience anyway. And nobody's really then tuning into how actively they're making meaning of that world and their acts of protest and response that could be looking problematic through another lens if we tune in and pay a bit more attention and look a little bit more closely, just slow it down, look a little bit more closely and understand the meaning they're making of their own behaviour, they're much more likely to engage in that because you're not coming from a deficit, let me convince you being bad and here's the way not to be naughty. You're interested in the way they're making meaning of the world. And then we can question whether some of those things are achieving that or not. So not all resistance response is always effective, but at least we understand the meaning that they're making of that behaviour they're much more actively 
engaged in the process as opposed to just us telling them stuff. Thanks for that, David. I want to now talk to you a little bit about your current role at Relationships Australia, particularly around working a lot around perpetrators yeah. and perpetrators of family violence and um, doing some work with their, their children. So how have the kind of principles of resistance and uh, response how have those aspects of your work been useful or not useful yeah. for you in your current role? Well, I think it's, it's really quite critical what I'm doing with adult men, particularly around their parenting, you know, engaging practices of violence and abuse, that we help them reposition the way they make meaning and sense of children and young people's behaviour as not being naughty, but they might be resisting responding some of their oppressive parenting practices through to violence, it's really important that we can help men tune into that sort of experiences as well. And for me, there's a couple of layers to it, but one of the really important layers I think is very much worth experiencing is when you're trying to help someone understand power relationships, like understanding power relations between adult and a child and young person. I mean, one experience we as human beings all universally carry is we all were a child or young person once in our lives. So the men actually hold some of those memories of what it like was to be a child and young person be, you know, marginalised or oppressed by adults. It's almost not to the same degree, but most of us have had that experience. So helping them tune in to understand some of their developmental context, some of the parenting practice they were exposed to or they had to make meaning of their own life through can be really, really helpful for them to tune into children's young people's experience. I mean, there's a really obvious thing about that size and strength thing which you can take the men through in terms of understanding what, what's it like if you deal with a kid who's six or seven and you're an adult, the idea of, say, you're six foot tall and they're three foot tall. You know, imagine someone who's 12 feet tall yelling or being angry or just storming through the house. How would you feel? But it's also that much more nuanced stuff about understanding from that developmental context that why children can often take responsibility and blame for their, you know, in this context, their dad's behaviour as well. And a lot of the men can actually recognise that through their own experiences of doing that with their own dads, stepfathers, whoever, that they for a long time thought they were responsible for their dads or stepfathers abusive behaviour. You know, and then we do some questioning called connecting through difference around understanding that you're sitting here and telling me that you as a child were really clear that that shouldn't have happened to your mum, but you felt that, you know, maybe you should have stopped it and you should have been able to sort of you know, stop your dad doing that to your mum. But you've come to realise that that's not possible as well. What does it now tell you about what your child Tim's going through at the moment as well? It's like, yeah, he must be really confused about whether he should be stopping it or not. And, you know, I haven't really thought about it like that, but I just don't want to be like my dad. It's just horrible to think like I'm, you know, now turning out like him as well. And then we say something like, well, do you think your dad would have been sitting here thinking about uh, your experience like the way you're thinking about Tim's now? You know, you're actually stopping enough to think that maybe Tim's being really, really confused about whose responsibility is it, that his mum's being hurt and he's being yelled at as well. So. Do you think your dad would have done that? Oh, no, he wouldn't have. Uh, so I'm just being like him. What, what do you think you now need to do that you're starting to think about Tim's experiences? You know, so we can then take them through as a sort of a, a more action type conversation, but through that connecting through difference, through understanding your own experiences of abuse and violence as a child, as a way of positioning about how now they want to be a dad moving forward can be a really grounded and also energised way of dealing with men who are using violence in their relationships. Okay, so you're talking to me a, a little bit about therapeutic processes with, with the fathers in this case. 
What about a relationship to Australia where you're in a therapy room with a child who yeah. still has a great sense of connection and, and love for his or her father, yeah. but is also being affected by his use of violence, which he or she either is perpetrated on mm-hmm. the mother or towards themselves. What sort of therapeutic interventions are important in that case? Well, I think the very the most important thing is understanding that experience of you know being subjected to violence and abuse or domestic violence or, or trauma is again understanding a relational context. I mean, this is not just some random stranger who's come to the house and assaulted his mum. This is somebody who's got a strong connection, his sense of story of who he is, his sense of place in the world, maybe connection to culture, a whole range of different things also comes through with this person who's his dad as well. So first of all, understanding that. So if we go in with just, let me convince you what a bad, terrible, horrible man, he's a monster, or he's horrible approach, it doesn't allow the kid to carry that relational context, but also start to question some of the dad's behaviour at the same time. Often if we come in without understanding that developmental context, we can then try to convince the child of stuff and they can't have both. Sometimes it can be a bit like, okay, we need to talk about some of the wrong things your dad did, but you want to tell me some of the really good things about your dad as well. Like he takes me to footy, you know, he helped me build my go-kart. And all those things are true as well. Okay, so now it's also it's good to understand some of that stuff. So it must make it really hard to talk about it when he's doing the wrong thing as well. Do you think that if I understand he's not just always a bad man, does it make it harder or easier to talk about when he yells at mum or he yells at you or when he's hurt your mum? Because if I understand that, maybe we can do some more working about when he's not doing the okay thing as well. And if we can be clear that when he's not doing the okay thing, it's not your mum or your fault, it's his fault. Do you think you'd be up for talking about that? I think by acknowledging some of those other things, that developmental context, I call it, that relational context, it allows that more complicated conversation to occur where a child or young person doesn't feel like they need to protect that person. You know, and that's one of the really honourable, loyal things about children. They look after animals. They try to protect those relationships as well. And going back a little while to where you were talking about an interest in children's response, Mm. often where a family member is using violence, the children might react or protest to that violence mm. in ways that can have the child be seen as oppositional or yeah. a naughty kid yeah. or lots of different negative connotations. Yeah. How do you, in, in your practice, help children move beyond those kind of descriptions? Yeah, like I'll give you a really practical example of that. Like I was a child who had broken a window in the house, for instance. So you just start with naughty kid, breaking a window, need to emotionally regulate, work out, stopping that behaviour. If you take the camera back and there was a whole other layer to what was going on, that that child was doing things that once he saw his dad's pattern, and he understood his dad's pattern, his dad's working himself up pattern really, really well, that he knew his dad had come in, he knew he was in one of those sort of head spaces, he could tell that he was starting on mother, sort of niggling her, just, just picking faults in the mum. So he then started to be naughty, act up to try to bring that energy that he could see going towards his mum across to him as well. And then the dad, you know, angry with him, showing the room when he broke the window to get out the window, for instance. You know, so that, that just gives you a bit of a story about this kid's, is it, it just being naughty? Or is this actually a resistance response? And what does it say about that child that they're willing to take that risk of bringing harm to themselves you know, think about this, you know, a smaller person, dad's bigger, had used violence before because they wanted to protect their mother. There's something quite 
honourable than that. And if we can't honour those stories and we just don't slow down enough to bring the camera back a little bit, understanding children's behaviour, we miss a chance to A, honour something about amazing quality of that car, has a loyalty, protectiveness, courage, a whole range of different qualities. But also we miss out on the way they've been active, not just passive in dealing with what's going on as well. Yeah, that's a really powerful story, David. Thank you for sharing that example. So within that, was it possible, do you think, for the child to make new meaning of that story of breaking the window? Yeah, you're countering a whole bunch of other stories the child's already been told about this behaviour. But I think once you slow it down and you could ask, well, even if the child's really struggling, you could then say, well, imagine if, if a friend of yours told you that same story, what would you say to a to your friend, oh, they're really brave and they're really, you know, smart and they're really clever. And, you know, so why is it hard to acknowledge that you are brave, smart and clever as well? You know, sometimes people have a lot of sympathy or even understand that that power relationships when they look at other people's experience, not their own. So sometimes it can be really hard for a child when they're being a young person to be labelled as being naughty, bad, off the rails, to accept some of this. But I, th- I think they're very... You know, he was very open to hearing that. He didn't suddenly go, you know, I'm brave, smart, and courageous. You know, it's not the point. Sometimes those questions, you could tell that that was something about another core meaning about who he was that we started to develop. And later on, there are other things you can collect and connect it. Is that one of those other times when you did some sort of thinking, or you were courageous and you were brave? You know, you can connect up the little, um, you know, the Lego blocks of different meanings and stuff like that. But you've started at least a base to actually connect the other bits of meaning or story or Lego boxes, I call them, connect them up for that child and person. So David, thank you so much for the benefit of your many years of practice and supervision um, experience today. Just one last question, because I know that within your role, you continue to supervise and mentor lots of practitioners working with children around sexual and physical violence. If you could leave us with maybe a couple of the most important messages that you attempt to support these practitioners through in your practice. I think, you know, very importantly, similar to what we do with clients is, you know, that practitioners find ways of actually resisting responding as well. There's obviously a really aspect of the story where you're hearing story upon story of children being harmed, being hurt, that being oppressed, being marginalised. You know, there's a lot of that. that, That's part of what we, the reason why people knock on our doors often is because of that that experience of sort of oppression. And it can be very easy as a practitioner to feel bogged down in that and you can't shift and, and move that stuff. So as well as tuning into resistance and response, for our clients, we need to also notice the really interesting, smart, clever, brave, courageous stuff that we do as therapists or as counsellors or as youth workers or as case managers, whatever our role is, to help children, young people manage some of those experiences of oppression as well. The other thing I think is really important that that whole work or that feet on the ground stuff as practitioners as well, that you know, how do we keep ourselves grounded as we're moving through these stories with children and young people as well? And for me, that's also why understanding that it's not that I have just have these magic answers that I can just sprinkle magic dust over all these situations and they completely disappear. But if I can help actually provide a framework where a person starts to notice their own way they resisted and responded, that's a really worthwhile experience as a practitioner as well. Walking out in the shower, there's nothing else I could have done. You know, I did definitely rolling around their head 
And if we don't have the boldness to create some space to sort of, you know, those unhelpful stories, beliefs, meanings to be, no, thank you, Dan. So that concludes the second of our two-part series with David Tully discussing supporting children who have disclosed trauma. So if you're really interested in accessing this online course that we have done, please visit our website on www.emergingminds.com.au where you'll find the Supporting Children Who Have Disclosed Trauma online course, but also a number of other trauma-related online courses, podcasts, webinars and practice papers. Thank you very much. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds. The National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.